0: 37 you can have your Bibles over in Ezekiel 37 uh, while you're turning there I want to remind you of something that Jesus said in John uh, chapter uh, 7 where he specifically makes a connection about his glorification his uh, death and resurrection and tying it to the coming of the Spirit. We're in the section of at the end of Ezekiel's book that is these prophecies about when Christ comes and sends the Holy Spirit. What are some of the things that are going to be done? And Jesus himself made that connection when he cried out there, If anyone thirsts on, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believe in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So these two are tied together in a very important way so that God is making a promise that he's going to send his spirit, but that can't happen until we have our shepherd come and give his life on behalf of the people and then Through him, the Spirit is going to be bringing about these radical changes. And tonight we're going to talk about a a radical relationship with God as well as a radical relationship uh, with with one another. So we'll we'll break this up into a few interesting pictures that we see in Ezekiel uh, 37. And one of the things that I'm going to spend time doing with this lesson is emphasizing how these things had to be pointing to the arrival of Christ in his first coming, him laying down his life and sending his spirit and establishing his kingdom as you read about uh, in the first century. I'm going to show the reasons why, uh, but we're moving into a section where people start moving this out to things that have not happened yet. In chapters 38 and 39... Lord willing, next week, Gog and Magog, don't miss that one, because that's, you know, top 10 list of what in the world is that about uh, going on in the, in the scriptures. That's there. And then you have the final chapters being about the, this grand temple uh, that Ezekiel sees in the vision. And so seeing where these things fit in God's plan of redeeming his people is really of the utmost importance. You'll, you'll notice in Ezekiel 37 and verse 15, we have a visual that Ezekiel is supposed to give. Ezekiel 37, verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and for the people of Israel associated with him. And then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and the house of Israel associated with him. And you shall join them as together into one stick that they may become one in your hand. And when the people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him. And I will join it to the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. All right, before we go into how this is all gonna play out, let's just get a sense of the visual that God tells Ezekiel, that uh, take a stick, I want you to inscribe essentially the northern nation uh, and put on there Israel uh, for Ephraim. And then the second one, I want you to take uh, Judah and I want you to write his name on there uh, for, for Joseph or for the, the southern nation. So you have Judah and Israel associated with them and then with Joseph or Ephraim, the northern nation associated with the two. And the visual that I would have is, you have these two sticks, and he says, I want you to join them together. So I'm visualizing, you take the two sticks end to end, and you hold it in the middle like that, so that it would look like one stick as you are holding it. And so now Ezekiel is walking around with this, these two sticks bound together by his hands <laughs> and his one. And everybody now is asking him, Well, what do these things mean? And the simple answer so far is just given there in in verse 19 that I'm going to make them one in my hand. I'm going to bring them together as one. Now, I want you to think about that prophecy for a minute and the complications of that idea. If you remember the northern nation Israel or Ephraim or Joseph as called here, was captured by Assyria. Assyria is a a cruel, cruel nation. And when they came in in about 722 BC, and they conquered Samaria and and, and took that northern nation, the way Assyria handled their invasions is entirely different than how the Babylonians did. Where what the Assyrians did was they didn't pick you up as a pocket of people and move you back to their land like the Babylonians did, strangely enough. Their idea was, if we scatter you all over the place, then you can't come together again and rebel against us. Makes sense. I'm not going to let you be together as a pocket of people. And so the Assyrians spread them all over the place. And you might remember, even Hosea's kids reflect that. One of them's name, scattered. Is is, I'm going to scatter you everywhere. And then you have... Along the same lines, then, what happens to Judah is where uh, Ezekiel is at right now. That Babylon did pick up people and move them as a whole unit and put them in a different place. And so that's why you see Ezekiel with all of his people, as well as Daniel. They're all in Babylon during that time. So what I want you to think about is this question. Here is God saying, I'm going to join Israel and Judah together. And the big question is, well, how are you going to do that? It is one thing to say, I'm going to take the remnant that you moved over to Babylon and I'm going to bring them back in 70 years. And we're often used to that prophecy. But think about the prophecy to say, and the northern nation too, in which I just scattered to the ends of the earth, people all over the place. They're just all over the empire at this point they're going to be joined together with Judah and I'm going to make them one nation yet again in the land. And so the big question is, how is that going to happen? And what ultimately does that look like? Well, I want you to notice the explanation that that now God gives in verse 20. In verse 20, when the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations, From among which they have gone and I will gather them from all around and I will bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. You will notice that you see the same point God makes here when he observes what happened in verse 21. Notice what he says that has happened to the people of Israel. Where are they scattered all over the earth? Essentially is what God says, but I'm going to take them and I'm going to somehow bring them all back and join them with Judah. And they're going to be able to be my people again. Now, I want to kind of just have you think through the scriptures a little bit in your studies of the major or minor prophets, or even you think about the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. There is no physical fulfillment that we can go to to observe to say, "Yep, and there's all the people of the northern nation of Israel all coming back too." when the people come back from Babylon under Zerubbabel and they're in the land and beginning to rebuild. There's no indication that we have the people of Israel also somehow coming as well, nor do we see that during the days of Ezra, nor in the days of Nehemiah. In fact, you might remember Ezra and Nehemiah are adamant that nobody outside of their remnant is allowed to be there and belong into the work of what they they are doing. So again, this big question is how is this all going to work out? And thankfully, verse 22 kind of helps you see that we must be pointing to something pretty dramatic because verse 22 then goes about saying there's going to be one king that's going to unify them and is going to be over them so that they're no longer two nations, but one. And again, I want you to think about what you read in the prophets or in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Do we ever read about another king? No, there is never a king to sit on the throne. In fact, you might remember when we were Ezekiel 19. Ezekiel made that point that after we got to Zedekiah, that was it. He was not going to have another one to rise up after him. Nobody's going to be continuing that line. And yet... Here is this promise that God is going to have a king and when he does, it's just going to radically change the nature of this kingdom so that Israel is going to belong and Judah is going to belong. And he's going to gather his people from the ends of the earth and they're all going to belong in this kingdom and they're all going to be under this king. And I want you to think about as you're coming into the first century, the days of John the Baptist and Jesus, that hadn't happened yet. You don't have a king over Israel and Judah. You don't have a unifying of Israel and Judah. You don't have a bringing back of the scattered uh, of the northern nation. So again, this is pointing to something pretty dramatic in the days ahead. And I want you to notice the result of this unification that is being pictured. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have, all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And they shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. All right, so let's talk about the results now that are given, described being described about this unification. You notice something very important that you see in verse 23 where it says, And my people are not gonna defy me anymore. They're not gonna be defiant in, in their sitting, they're not gonna chase after their idols anymore. And you might have had a sense if you've been with us in the last few Sunday nights that this paragraph in some ways sounds like a summary of larger chapters that have already been proclaimed. That we've heard God say they're going to get rid of their idols and their detestable actions and they're not going to defile themselves anymore. And you'll notice that continues in the rest of verse 23. I will save them from all their backslidings from which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them. And notice the result that's given there in verse 23. They shall be my people and I will be their God. So you have this, this picture of hope that says now God is going to be able to be with his people. And if you take a step back and think about that promise, that's what God has wanted from the start. When you start with Adam and Eve and you think about God and fellowship with Adam and Eve and how that was desired to have this close relationship. But sin came into the picture and severs the relationship. Adam and Eve are then cast out of the garden. God goes about it again through the law of Moses. If you do these things, you will live. You can have a relationship with God. Just do the law, which of course becomes a problem because the law then brings about sin and we all die because of sin and because of the law. So here is again God trying to have relationship with his people, but the same problem is sin. So notice that verse 23 is saying, I'm going to deal with the sin problem. I'm going to cleanse them. I'm going to deal with their their backslidings. I'm going to get rid of these defilements so that I can be their God and they will be my people. And then he gives a little bit more about what the picture is in this in verse 24. My servant David will be the king over them and they are going to have one shepherd and they're going to walk by my rules. And so here is this picture of I'm going to establish my, my servant and it's going to be David and he's going to be your shepherd and he's going to be your king and he's going to be the way, way by which he can now rule over you forever and give you that life and that hope that you are looking for. And in fact, you'll notice in verse 25, it says they're going to dwell in the land. I don't have time. Two or three weeks ago, was it? I did a whole lesson on the land in and tw- chapters 20, 34, and 35. But that big reminder was, is that the people of God were never looking for their hope to be bound in the dirt between the Mediterranean and the, and the Jordan River. But this eternal inheritance in which God rules heaven and earth, and we're joined to it. And so here is this picture is that. David is going to be king. He's going to shepherd his people. He's going to have rule over heaven and earth. And you're going to be a part of that inheritance. Verse 26, an everlasting covenant of peace is going to be established because you get the beautiful picture in verse 26. I'm going to put them in the land. I'm going to put my temple in their midst. Verse 27, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And notice how it ends. And then all the nations are going to know that I'm the Lord who makes his people holy when I put my temple, my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. All right. That's a mouthful of pictures. That's a whole lot that he says is going on. And what I want to do is just spend some minutes talking about. So what is this pointing to? What is this talking about? And why is this so important for us that we see this here and you see the New Testament keying in on this prophecy? The first thing that I think is really important for us to get our our minds around and our hands on here is that this prophecy has to be filled, but fulfilled when Christ comes and is first coming. And here's why. Because. Of all the details that are given here, if this doesn't happen when Christ first comes, then that means God hasn't sent his king yet to shepherd his people, which Jesus ran around saying, I'm your shepherd, I'm the good shepherd, I'm here to save you and to shepherd you. If this is not talking about Christ and his first coming, then there's not forgiveness of sins yet. Because he makes the promise here that I'm going to save them from all of their backslidings in which they've sinned and I will cleanse them. And he then says twice in this passage... This is the means by which I can be your God and you will be my people, which places like first Peter chapter two, you have Peter coming along saying that we are his chosen race. We are his people that we have been called out of darkness and into this light. And so you're getting these calls that, yes, this has absolutely happened. And most notably, you'll note that it says there that there's going to be a covenant of peace that's going to be established. Well, if this hasn't happened yet, then we don't have a covenant of peace either. Now, again, I want to underscore the reason why this is so important is we are in a body of text in which people read this and go, none of this has happened yet. Gog and Magog still waiting for it. New temple still waiting for it. Promises of restoration still waiting for it. Unifying of Israel and Judah together still waiting for it. We're all still waiting for all these things. And I just want to observe there are some major, major problems in pushing things out to the end times and saying they haven't happened yet, most notably these. Well, then we don't have the covenant yet. Then we don't have our shepherd yet. Then we don't have our king yet. Then we don't have forgiveness yet. And I want us to obviously note that the the New Testament's constantly telling us that this is exactly what we have available to us in Christ. In fact, this is what the apostle Peter is saying in Acts 2. When Acts 2 opens with Peter and he stands up with the 11 and he starts preaching and he uses Joel 2 as his base text. One of the key things that he is emphasizing is that now there is repentance and restoration and life that is available to you. If you will repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But think about what is told to us in Acts 2. Right before that sermon happens, Luke goes out of his way to say, You realize that there were people from all over the empire who were there at that moment. In chapter 2, about verse 16, it starts saying, Oh, there were the Cretans there, and there were these people from this region, and this region, and this region, and this region, and all these regions are listed. And you kind of just quickly go, Okay, okay, okay. That's really important. Because here is God making this call that here is physical Israel being called from all over the empire. These, this is a physical Israel who would have been there at Pentecost because the Passover had just happened a couple months earlier. And now here they have come and they are now enjoying this moment. They are there for Pentecost. And Peter stands up and is showing, here is all of Israel now being gathered from the ends of the earth with this proclamation to them to be able to enjoy this restoration repentance and life that that is now available the apostle peter also when he opens up his first letter he says something weird when he he writes this is to the elect exiles of the dispersion Everything, what are you talking about the scattered this calling in of the dispersed and the scattered who've been scattered across the earth now All are being called back in in this this gospel message to be able to come under the rule and kingship of of Jesus. Now, we can read all that and wonder, why does that matter? What is the the importance of that? Why does God have to come along and say, I need to bring Israel and Judah and bring all of my people together. And it's going to be like two broken sticks to together. I'm going to join them together. Because for us, we just sit back and read them, and go, all right, God, you're just going to call people and save them, right? We just kind of simplify it, leave it at that. Why all of this information about bringing everybody in? And one of the things that I want to show you tonight that is the key to our lesson about radical relationships is that what you see God doing through the kingship of Christ is that he's creating these radical relationships that ultimately is able to unify a people who have all of these different backgrounds and cultures and languages who are scattered all over the earth and join them into a single people who have been given a common purpose. Now, I want to show you the relevance of that, but I want you to think about what this is, what Ezekiel is doing, is trying to get us to understand. I'm going to gather my people from all over the earth, regardless of background and who they are, and I'm going to make them this one people. Now, listen to how Jesus said these things were important and why our unity And our harmony and our working together is so critical to the pictures that are being prophesied. You might remember, here is Jesus, and some of the final words we have uh, from Jesus before he is arrested. John's account records this prayer that he offers. And in the midst of that prayer, he begins to round it out by saying there in verse 23, that I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me. All right, I want you think about what, what Jesus says there. So I'm not just praying for me and not just for my, my, my 11 here, but I'm also praying for all those who would believe in me. Well, what are you wanting? That they would be one. Why is that so important? He says, So that the world will know that you sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. And I underline to you how Ezekiel thirty-seven ended with this picture of this covenant of peace and this king who is going to unify his people and what was to be the result. Verse 28. Then the nations will know. That I am the Lord. Who makes my people holy. When I put my sanctuary in their midst. Now here is Jesus. The sanctuary. In the midst of his people saying. You all need to be one. You need to be unified. There needs not to be a division among you. But join together. So that. The world will know that I'm that sanctuary, that I'm that temple, so that the world will know that I've been sent from the Father. To say that more simply, a passage we know pretty well, a little bit earlier Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. And I suppose if we didn't know this passage before, and you were to take a poll, and you had never read this, and you would say, how is the world supposed to know that we belong to Christ? And we'd probably come up with a lot of different answers. You know, well, we're always here on Sunday. Well, we've got a sign out front because we, and I want you to notice what he says is here's the defining way that the world is supposed to know that we belong to Christ. This idea of unity, that you love one another. It's so important that after the Apostle Paul in the first three chapters of Ephesians, as he describes the calling that we have been given as his followers, he says this in chapter four and in verse one. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling which you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, and Bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Of all the things that we would probably say, if the apostle Paul said, you need to walk worthy of the calling. I don't know that we would have started the list with, okay, walking of the worthy of the calling means being humble and being gentle and being patient and bearing with one another and making every effort to be unified. But notice what he calls the unity. The unity of the Spirit. Where in the world did that come from? Right here. Right here. When the Spirit comes, it's a calling of all of His people throughout the earth to be joined together as one so that the world will know that Christ is in our midst as the temple. I thought this was an interesting exercise. I don't have time for the, to go through all the details of it, but I think you could successfully go through all of Paul's letters and see him highlight the importance of there being a lack of division and there being strong harmony and unity among God's people. Like 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. Do not have any divisions among you. That whole book is about the problem of divisions that are going on in the Corinthian church. To the Galatians, he writes to them, be sure you don't bite and devour one another lest you be consumed. Here you're turning on each other and there's a lack of harmony because of that. Or to the Philippians where he writes to them and tells them how they need to agree in the Lord. In fact, he notes two women and tells them, You need to get along. You need to agree. And he's using what happened two chapters earlier in chapter two and says, you need to put the interest of others ahead of yourself, just like Christ did for you. You follow that same example. Or to the Colossians, be knit together in love and put on love that binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul over and over and over again, keeps stressing, be unified. Don't be divided, be humble, be gentle, be patient, bear with each other. Why is that so important? Because here is Ezekiel giving a prophecy and saying, you're going to experience a radical restoration in Christ. When my shepherd comes, he's going to be your prince and he's going to establish a covenant of peace and he's going to forgive your sins and take away those backslidings, so that you can belong to him. I will be your God and you will be my people and the least that we can do then is extend grace to others because we've experienced so much grace from God. And that is why Ezekiel is saying what he's saying. Is He's saying, here's my vision of what my people are going to be like. They're going to be so dramatically changed, so radically different. They're going to treat each other so differently that Ezekiel can end by saying the world. The nations, the outsiders, will know that I'm the Lord who saves his people and makes them holy. They're going to be that different. Unfortunately, we live in a time when it's very easy to be full of divisions It's an easy time right now to be really intolerant of everybody and be angry at everybody and not get along with people and shake your head at everybody and lack patience and humility and gentleness. We are a world that has thrown out humility, gentleness, and patience right out the window. And I want us to see that this is a time in which we as the people of God should look radically different in the world and in particular radically different in how we communicate and deal with each other that's the point that he's making what are we saying to the world if we can't show love to each other that's what Jesus was saying in John 13:35 by this the world will know that you're my disciples that you love one another If we can't even love one another, then how are we going to do in trying to love the world to save them? And this is why the message is so critical that Ezekiel pulls and says, we need to pay far more attention to the amazing grace that God has displayed upon us who has forgiven us radically so that we can be in a whole new relationship with him so that we would turn around and use that grace and patience to serve and care for one another. We will do for one another like no one else will because we have been called into a radical relationship with Christ. We will treat one another in a way that no one have ever seen because we have this radical relationship with one another with Christ as our king. There is a visual that God has here that it wouldn't matter what the background and differences are that we would have. They all just are set aside because we are joined into this one nation, this one kingdom kingdom that belongs to Christ and that we would look at one another in that way. And is it any wonder that you have these condemnations in the New Testament that says, what are you doing biting and devouring one another? What are you doing not caring for one another? Why are you not loving one another? How could there be divisions? How could you have strife? How could you have wrath? How could you have anger? How could you treat them that way? You're the new people of God act according to the calling or to use the apostle Paul's words to walk worthy of the calling with humility and gentleness bearing with one another showing patience toward one another and making every effort to be unified together in the bond of peace in the spirit loving one another and being committed to one another and caring for one another can only happen when we keep our eyes focused on these kinds of things of what God has done for us, that we now have this great king who has forgiven us all of our backslidings and has given us this wonderful covenant of peace so that we can enjoy an eternal inheritance with him And what he asks us to do is to live in such a way that shows the world that Christ is in our midst. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, forgive. Forgive for how many times throughout the history of your people That there have been divisions and fights. There has been strife and anger. There have been awful words and awful deeds that have been done for your name. And Lord, I pray that we would just be keenly aware of what our calling is. And that we would think and be so careful and thoughtful about how we would be humble toward one another. How we could be gentle and patient as we go about living our lives for you. Lord, forgive us for when we have lacked our humility, when we have lacked that gentleness. Forgive us for when we have not said the things that we ought to have said. Forgive us for when we have said things we should not have said. And Lord, I pray that we would always have a spirit of love and harmony, not only in this group, but that we would think of ourselves as a body worldwide of followers of you who are all seeking to follow you with all of our hearts. Lord, help us to always remember that we serve your son as our king. And we thank you, Lord, for giving us this covenant of peace, that you have forgiven us our sins, that you have taken away these things that made it impossible for us to have a relationship with you. But you have sent your son to be a sanctuary in our midst so that we could be your people and that you would be our God. Lord, we thank you for this forgiveness. We thank you for this relationship we have with you. And Lord, we thank you for the relationship that we have with each other. And let us always be grateful for what we have as this family of your people. May we not take it for granted, Lord, but always appreciate this great family and this great kingdom we enjoy. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus tonight to turn away from sin and to, to see the great relationship that that God has, has has called us to. It is, it is kind of shocking to think about. It kind of hurts the mind a little bit. But if you just think about how radically different human beings are from different places and different experiences and different environments and different upbringings, and that God would have the power to take people and bring them into a family. People that would probably argue and fight over every little thing. But through the blood of Christ become unified. And become joined together for a single purpose. It is a stunning act of God's greatness. And I hope that we would always appreciate what it means to be part of the family. And that we would live up to the glorious calling that he's been given to us. We help you come to him tonight. We let us know if there's anything we do for you. once you come while we stand? in and-